This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, welcome. Hello, it's great to have you here. Uh, it's Tuesday. You are already mostly into your week. Let's just say that because it's the end of Tuesday and I'm glad you're here. Uh, let's just end the night on some murder mysteries, some true crime. The truest tonight, which just kind of slapped me in the face today, uh, was what happened in the Caitlin Armstrong trial. I have covered a lot of cases, right? I've covered a lot of murders. And there are all sorts of ways that there's 50 ways to kill your lover. You've heard it. But what I heard today in the Caitlin Armstrong trial, it's the cyclist, it's the yoga. You always hear every different brand for this one, right? The, what, what I heard today was so upsetting because the medical examiner gave us all the information on what happened to, to Mo Wilson, right? And it takes a lot to shoot someone in the face. That's what happened to Mo Wilson right here, right beside, right-hand side of her nose, right there, right in the face. Little upwards would have been in the eye. A little bit down, it would have been in the mouth. Right in the middle of Mo Wilson's face. There is a certain kind of killer that shoots someone in the face. It's revenge and anger and hatred. And sometimes it's just jealousy. Sometimes it's just to wreck whatever beauty there was left there. That's why this was so important today learning that from the medical examiner. Mo Wilson was shot in the face. So that's the killer we're talking about. Is that Caitlin Armstrong? Michael Wellner knows the answers to these kinds of things because he's a renowned forensic psychologist. He knows the answers. I'm going to talk to him live on this show. Preeminent forensic psychiatrist. Um, and he just has such insight. So I'm going to talk to him about this, the kind of person that shoots someone in the face. Then, uh, look, marijuana, it invokes a lot of thoughts among a lot of people, sometimes uh, critical, sometimes supportive. But no matter what, there are a lot of states where it's legal, and California is one of them, for recreation. The problem is for some people, and it's a serious problem for some people, is that it isn't your grandpa's weed anymore. It ain't the weed of Woodstock. Weed today is so much more potent, it can actually lead to dangerous psychosis in some people. And if you're going to believe the defendant in tonight's murder story, it could lead to murder. Because the defendant in tonight's story wasn't a weed addict, had barely ever tried it before, but one or two or three hits off her boyfriend's bong, and this is the result. See all the cuts and scrapes and blood all over her chin and her neck? That was because she stabbed herself multiple times after she stabbed her own dog to death, after she stabbed her boyfriend over a hundred times. So we're going to talk about 
weed as a defense and what people are saying about it officially these days. And then Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow-Daybell. Oh, to be a fly on the wall if they get what they want, at least what we think they might want, and that is to be able to have a coffee clutch and chat. Wouldn't you want to hear that conversation? Because prosecutors in Chad Daybell's case sure want to hear a conversation between them, but it's really unclear. Are they allowed? Are they allowed to just pick up the cell phone, as in cell room, cell block phone, and talk to each other? It is a bit funny what's going on in that. I'm going to make it all clear a little later on in the program, but let's talk about this first, shall we? Crime scene can tell you a lot about a murder. And an autopsy can tell you even more about a murder. And in Mo Wilson's autopsy, it spoke volumes because killers don't do the kind of thing this killer did to Mo Wilson unless it's personal. Caitlin Armstrong there with the long red hair. Mo Wilson on the right in better days. Beautiful, beautiful girls. And if you ask the watchers of this love triangle, Caitlin Armstrong was sure jealous of Mo Wilson, blocked her on her boyfriend's phone, stalked her, followed her, angry that her boyfriend had had a prior relationship with Mo and was going out and seeing her in secret. Whether it was sexual or not, that's not the issue. This woman was mad that her boyfriend was seeing that other woman. It is hard now to hear the audio of the actual murder happening, because that's what we have. There's a neighbor with a, a security camera on the porch that recorded every one of the three shots that Mo Wilson suffered that night she was murdered. And at the time we heard that audio, we didn't really know the extent of the shots that were fired, and now tonight we do, because medical examiner told us Mo Wilson got the first shot right to the face, to the right side beside her nose, into the cheek, out through the lower jaw. The second shot, closer to the temple and out through the bottom of the jaw. And the third shot, after a pause, Mo Wilson got straight to the heart, and she was lying down because the medical examiner said she was up against a hard surface, lying in the bathroom, when that final shot pierced her heart. So now when we listen to those shots, we can imagine what Mo was going through as she saw the barrel three feet away from her face. I'm going to just give you that warning. I'm going to play the, the sound. It's upsetting to some. To others, it's very informative. So here it is again, those, uh, those three shots that, that killed Mo Wilson. takes on a whole other meaning. Uh, The messenger got that audio. It was presented in court, but remember, there's no cameras in the courtroom, which is very upsetting, and it led to a lot of misinformation about those shots. At first, we thought it was 45 seconds before that final shot through the heart. Instead, it was four to five seconds that we could hear once we heard the evidence and once we saw the evidence, and there's the messenger able to get that evidence from a different source. No no thanks to the court. Messenger getting that audio. Um, The deputy medical examiner today was on the stand describing in a lot more detail what I just told you about. I say shot to the face. This is what the deputy medical examiner said. The first shot was to the right side of the face. The bullet went in by the nose, exiting on the left side of the jaw. 
The second shot was to the right temporal scalp, side of the head. Bullet exited beneath the chin. The third shot was to the left side of the chest. Exited out the back. Exit wound consistent with the body being pushed against a firm surface. Wilson was shot while lying on the bathroom floor. She was also injured on her right index finger, likely a defensive wound, stopping, wishing, hoping, and then scrapes and bruises on her legs, possibly considered to be bullet grazes. This was a hard day for the jury, make no mistake, because they had to look at all these pictures. I wonder what the reaction was from Caitlin Armstrong. I wonder how her day was. National correspondent um, Alex Capriello of News Nation joining me now. He was inside the courtroom. You are our eyes and ears, Alex. How was Caitlin when those pictures were being shown to the court? She showed a lot of what we've seen from her so far. Pretty stone face, very emotionless. I did see her avert her eyes uh, at certain instances. She was holding a pen, but she wasn't necessarily writing anything down, almost as if she was using it to take her attention away. Meanwhile, Caitlin Armstrong's parents right there behind her, that obviously got to be tough for them to see as well. They had their eyes trained on the screen. They were not averting their eyes. They wanted to see exactly what was in front of them. Mo Wilson's family, absent from the courtroom, can't blame them. Clearly they got tipped off and they decided to sit this one out. What about the jury? Because it's one thing to see what the, you know, the, the defendant's reaction is. Of course we know the victim's families are going to be devastated and likely not present. That's often the case. But the jury is the critical arbiter here. What did they look like? Yeah, there are several computer screens and monitors that are right in front of each of these jury members. And I got to tell you, every single one of them was very zoned in, focused in on it, uh, looking at that evidence that was before them. And then on top of that, the assistant district attorney actually took off his sport coat and stood up in front of the jury and had the medical examiner use a very long dowel to point and show the trajectories of the bullets. The one that went through the nose and out through the jaw, the other one that went through the back of the head and out the chin. And so that way, he, they were able to see on an actual physical human what that looks like right there in front of them. It was very, very compelling. Another issue in court today I thought was so fascinating was the DNA that was found on Mo Wilson's bike, on the handlebars, on the seat, but then also DNA found on the gun. What, what was critical about those findings? Yeah, the big thing that people could take away from that is that there was a very strong likelihood, which is the best that really a DNA expert can provide because they can never actually give a 100% guarantee, but a very strong likelihood that Caitlin Armstrong's DNA was found on those items that you mentioned, the handlebars, the seat, and also the possible murder weapon. Obviously, this is huge when it comes to DNA analysis. They want to see whether or not that actually exists. And to your point that you've mentioned so many times, there is no reason at all that Caitlin Armstrong's DNA would be anywhere near Mo Wilson's bike. They weren't friends. They didn't hang out. She never actually rode her bike. So that is a really big red flag in the eyes of jury members who all of a sudden see this finally connecting the dots. Yeah, and the defense didn't put any ideas in their heads as to why Caitlin's DNA would be on Mo's handlebars or Mo's seat when she is not friends with Mo and spends no time riding with her. Um, I, I, this was amazing. The jury got to see the escape video when Caitlin Armstrong took off from her jail guards yeah. after that hospital visit. And you learned so much more about it. Walk me through it. What did we, uh, what did we find out? Yeah, I know this was one moment that we've been talking about forever. If they're going to actually see that jailhouse escape, and we really learned a lot more about it. Number one, the fact that uh, she went to the hospital to be treated for a shoulder injury. She told the doctor that a 
corrections officer at the jail had kicked her, and that's how she sustained the shoulder injury. In injury. Whether or not we know that's true or not, we don't quite know. Uh, that's the reason why she wasn't wearing any leg restraints. She actually freed herself from the handcuffs when she was actually making that escape because this sheriff's deputy testified that she actually had handcuffs on before. So that's a big question, how she was able to actually get herself out of those. She actually led this chase for about half a mile away before being captured. They say that Kaylin Armstrong was very calm when she was captured. She wasn't in any sort of panic. And then the greatest irony of all, she was actually captured on Wilson Street. Can you believe that, Ashley? Wow. Are you kidding? Well, there's one other thing I think I, I saw um, that she had, the do- she had a doctor's note to, to make sure she wasn't wearing leg irons. Is that, is that true? That is true. The sheriff's deputy said that they actually saw the the note. It was true. It was authentic. It came from the jailhouse doctor. It had to do with that shoulder shoulder injury, which is why she wasn't wearing those leg restraints. Um, And so the sheriff's deputy says that was enough for her to follow those orders, and that's the reason why she was able to make such a quick getaway. Fascinating. Alex Capriello, great reporting on this today. Thank you. Appreciate it. I want to bring in Dr. Michael Wellner. Leading forensic psychiatrist and developer of the depravity standard, which scales the blameworthiness of the worst crimes. Oh, Dr. Mel, uh, Wellner, you're, you're perfect for this. When we heard that testimony today that Mo Wilson was shot right here to the right of her nose, right through the, the front of her face, I instantly thought you would know what kind of a person uh, kills someone that way. What's the answer? You know, if you take a step back and you switch genders... I think we're all familiar with cases of the controlling boyfriend or male spouse who has the trophy of the significant other, the, the, the trophy female. And they try to control, but when it starts to slip away and they, they can come to appreciate that it's never going to come back to them and that they themselves uh, are losing their luster in someone's eyes that they were once able to really maintain some control over the relationship, uh, it, it is, it's, a, it's a very humiliating and demeaning experience. Uh, for, for most of us who go through that, when we lose something very special to us and, and we try, uh, it can be painful, it can be extremely painful for, for those people who are quite controlling and, and, and don't deal with let that loss of control well. Uh, any number of things can happen, and that's why in, in many situations you see domestic violence uh, when, when, uh, when someone who has the ability to be aggressive uh, reacts to what they can't control. Now take someone who's successful. Caitlin is successful, accomplished, bright, uh, and has insinuated herself uh, into uh, the, the life of this Colin Strickland, who's a celebrity cyclist, he's very popular, he's very appealing, um, and as she gets older, and, and he makes it quite clear that he wants to have his way and have his freedom, um, along comes someone who is herself a rising star, who is much younger, who's also appealing, and who he's clearly intrigued with. And so Caitlin is controlling enough, not just of the finances and of, of their different aspects of their relationship, but is, but is even in a position where she's, she's uh, controlling who he has access to on, on his phone. So, so her, her efforts are unsuccessful. And, and clearly this is someone who may have contributed to their relationship disintegrating. So I, I, I think that ties in 
quite understandably with the idea of a confrontation between a controlling individual and someone that she blames for taking her property away from her. The last thing that you will see is my gun pointing at your face and your beauty and your appearance. And, and so uh, for someone who is disciplined enough to orchestrate an escape in the way that's been described to us, who, who's been quick thinking enough to get to Costa Rica and to position herself in a way to evade capture, to use aliases, um, it's hard not to envision that when she confronted uh, the victim, that she confronted her the way that she wanted to and with an idea toward this is the last thing that, that I want hmm. Mo to see is me uh, and, and the person that she's taken my property, my possession away from me. Again, from, from we're used to away. seeing this in male-female terms, but it's a little bit different um, and yet it's a very similar well, dynamic. Speaking of that, I do want to ask you about the benefit of the doubt. When juries have a woman and there's a benefit of the doubt that they're supposed to get in our judicial system, uh, does the benefit of the doubt erode with a situation that looks like hell hath no fury than a woman's scorn? I, I just want to know if you can get into the minds of jurors when they look across the courtroom and they see a beautiful woman accused of having done the things you just described. It depends, and that's a challenge for attorneys. If the jury can identify with the female defendant, then it then it's easier for a defense attorney to speak to that and, and to uh, give a jury pause to say, can you imagine this person being the kind of individual who'd hold a gun up to someone's face, shoot her in the face, shoot her in the head, shoot her three times, um, and, and to really be as cold-blooded as the prosecution is making her out to be. Can you, can you imagine that? And I think the, the jury's ability to identify with someone, to see themselves in that person, if they can see themselves in the defendant, it's harder for them to imagine uh, the, the evil in, in an individual. It's something that none of us want to uh, have that kind of closeness to. But if they, if they can distance themselves from it, if they, 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 they find that this is someone they can't relate to, it's a lot easier for them to be able to, to see that individual as capable of doing the unthinkable. So that's, that's a challenge psychologically that a defense attorney has in relating to a jury and portraying to a jury in some cases, it's easier than others. And I've been, in, 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 in my experience of over 30 years, I've seen it work both ways. I've seen uh, defense attorneys uh, able to make people sympathetic uh, who shouldn't have been. And I've seen prosecutors make people unsympathetic who, who should have been. Uh, but, but that is the subtext of what goes on beyond the evidence when juries have to make difficult decisions and they don't necessarily feel that they have everything, but they have a lot to work with in the way of evidence. Dr. Wellner, you've just always got the best insight. Um, you know, I was uh, I was curious about the fact that she, you know, Caitlin looked away when everyone else in the courtroom didn't look away. And, you know, when that's the case, you, you never know what to think. The, the family wasn't there. They probably would have looked away, too. But it's also curious. You'll have to come back again. Thank you so much. Accountability is a tough thing. Ooh. Accountability. Nobody wants to look at accountability. Accountability is a tough thing. And, and so, yeah, we may be overreading it, but nobody wants to come face to face with the enormity of what they, they can't change. You can't put toothpaste back in the tube. And when you're a smart person looking at a significant criminal sentence, it's too late. It's too late to put toothpaste back in the tube.
I'm calling you back because it, we might have closings tomorrow. They were, there were mutterings in court that we might have closings and maybe even a verdict by the end of the week. So I'm calling you again. Thanks, Dr. Wellner. Thank you for your interest. All right. So a few weeks ago, I do want to tell you this. We covered another murder case where a beautiful victim was also shot in the face, and it turned into a nationwide manhunt for her husband, Aaron Pennington, who still has not been caught. But they did find a shocking set of instructions to kill when they started to investigate. I'm going to read that graphic list in just a moment. I wanted to give you some fair warning, though, because it's a bit disturbing. Uh, So that's coming in about a minute. Uh, That APB went out for the 33-year-old husband. He's officially wanted for the murder of his wife, Brianne. This is the really hard part. They have four kids. And those four kids ran crying to the neighbor's house early that morning. It was October 22nd. Um, The neighbor called 911, but when the police got there, just minutes later, Aaron Pennington was already gone. Dad had split. Mom was already dead upstairs in the bedroom, shot in the face. Here's that mind-blowing part I gave you a warning about. They found a note written the day before the killing with instructions, and the note said this. Don't say anything. Be quiet, spelled wrong. If she wakes up, just say you're getting nasal spray. Get on side of bed, very close proximity on bed. Put hole in her head. Pennington's BMW was found in a wooded area that the investigators have found no sign of him. He is a military veteran, having served in the U.S. Air Force from 2015 through till 2022. Here's the description by the police. White, 6'2", 175 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes. That is the picture. Sear it into your memory. And police say, if you see him, don't approach him. Call 911 immediately. He is dangerous, obviously. Still to come, a woman stabs her boyfriend a hundred times and then stabs her dog and herself. Now she is on trial and both sides agree that cannabis, marijuana, is at least partly to blame. Not the so-called Woodstock weed of years past, but marijuana so potent that it causes psychotic breaks in otherwise healthy people. So what does that mean for the law? How do smokers avoid becoming psychotic? And how do the victims get justice? The father of this latest victim joins me live next for his first national interview, and that story is coming up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You don't need me to tell you this, because you've been seeing it for years, the debate over the legalization of marijuana. A lot of people, proponents, especially for medical applications, and but the recreational part, that's 24 states now where it's legal. Recreational marijuana legal in 24 states. Here's the thing, though. I'm a little older than you, maybe. And um, when I was young, I, I heard that it was not as potent as it is today. And here are the real stats. It was about 4% potency in THC back in 1995, and that has spiked to 17% by 2017. That is massive. That's four times the potency, if you even know what you're getting, right? 
And the reason this is important is because it's now factoring in to the case of what was a second-degree murder charge and is now an involuntary manslaughter charge. Let me back it up. Bryn Speecher, in 2018, took a couple of puffs off of her boyfriend's bong and went into complete psychosis, according to Bryn. What she was found to have done was stabbed him, Chad Omelia, 108 times with three kitchen knives that she ran and grabbed from the kitchen. After she was finished stabbing Chad 108 times, she then stabbed her own dog and killed the dog and then turned the knives on herself. You can see the result of it in the mugshot. She's got cuts and blood on her chin, on her neck. The police body cam, which we don't have at this point, not sure we could ever show it, even if we did, uh, was reported to show a crazed woman in a, quote, possessed state, crouching over Chad and stabbing herself. It took the police nine strikes with a steel baton to get her to drop the murder weapons. She has no history of mental illness. She confessed to all of this. And the original charge five years ago at second-degree murder was reduced just recently to involuntary manslaughter. That reduces the penalty from 25 years down to about four if she's found guilty. And again, this isn't a question of if she did it. She's confessed to doing it. What she's trying to say in her defense is, this is a psychotic break. I I barely ever smoked marijuana in my life, my first time or fourth time, and and this happened. And it was so potent, it put me into a psychotic break. For the victim's family, hearing about this change in the charge from second-degree murder, 25 years, down to involuntary manslaughter, maybe four, they said it felt like an ambush. You can imagine what it would be like sitting in a courtroom going through all of this. Sean O'Melia knows what it's like. He's Chad's father. And he joins me live now for his first national interview. Chad, or, Sean, thank you, first of all, so much for being on tonight. And please, can I just offer you my sincere condolences uh, to what you've gone through and what your family's gone through in losing Chad, but then also going through what you're going through now. And that is that the politics of, of the, the criminal justice system and the suffering of, of having to live through a trial as a family member. So Let's just start there with, you know, understanding how difficult this is is for you. Let me ask you your thoughts on the prosecution of this case to start with. Okay. Um, Well, first of all, Ashley, thank you for having me this evening. Um, The prosecution of the case after seeing and hearing most of what I've heard, uh, they notified our family about a month before they were going to change the charges uh, from second-degree murder to involuntary manslaughter. They did notify us of that, and we were opposed to it. Uh, We feel that there was enough information in their hands to actually maintain that charge, and we had a meeting, discussed it, and they continued uh, in the direction that they are going and now with involuntary manslaughter. I can imagine that is extremely um, painful for, for you and your family, not feeling like you have a say, because often, you know, the way it works is prosecutors are the attorneys for the victim's family uh, members and, and loved ones. So it, it's, it's upsetting to hear that um, that wasn't a, um, a feeling that your family agreed with and that they went ahead 
with it. Did they give you good reasons or did they at least give you reasons that made any sense, even if you disagreed with them? You know, they, they did their best to try to explain it. You know, I obviously have access to my own attorneys and my own counsel, and, you know, they have their opinion on the evidence that's there. And when you review something like this and somebody's claim is, well, I was unconscious uh, when I performed the act, and then they're able to give a statement that tells what happened, that in itself demonstrates that there was a level of consciousness that was there. Now, you know, what level of consciousness? I can't even speak to that. I'm not a doctor. But I would say that it's her own words and statement that uh, the people I reviewed it with, the attorneys I reviewed it with, said that there really is enough information here to leave the charges as they are. Um, But again, one thing you learn about this is that the DA's office has control of the case. The defense can change their attorneys any time. But the prosecution, you know, we have no say over who does what, and they proceed uh, with the charges that they feel that they can get a conviction on. Sean, I have about a minute left, but I do want to ask, was there, was there a bad relationship uh, between Bryn and Chad? Was there any other motive that you can imagine would have been the reason for this, if not for what she says was just a complete psychotic break and a snap? No. Uh, it, it seemed to me from all of the information that I've heard, all the um, you know, testimony I've heard, that they were getting along just fine. Um, it was very, very early on. They had just met each other about three weeks ago. So the relationship hadn't run its course or gotten very far into it at all. But no, there was no uh, fighting or arguing or anything like that. They were both, you know, professional people. My son was an accountant. Uh, She was an audiologist. So uh, they both had bright futures. They really did. Sean, it's so perplexing. And um, and again, I I can't stress enough how how sorry I am that you're going through this. We'll continue to follow this. and, And maybe you and I can speak again. Uh, when the trial runs its course and, um, and the jury gives its verdict. Can we do that? Yes, thank you for letting me speak tonight. I Sean appreciate Amelia, it. We appreciate you. Thank you for that. And we will follow up on this case as well. Coming up in just a moment, should two people accused of getting together to murder three people be allowed to talk to each other in private? Let me fill in some blanks. Chad Daybell is going on trial for murdering his wife, but he's also accused of murdering the two kids who were in the way of a life of freedom with his mistress. That mistress, Lori Vallow, became wife number two. Should they be allowed to chit-chat from their respective jail cells? What about together in a meeting with their lawyers? That's what the state of Idaho was trying to block. And P.S., wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall during the, the calls and the meetings or Chad's now throwing his lover Lori under the bus? We've got the full story coming up next. Here's what I would love. I would love to listen in on um, someone's phone call. Not just anyone. I would love to listen in on Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow Daybell's conversation. Now, of course, we all would, right? Because, oh, what would she say now that he's throwing her under the bus as he goes to trial uh, for the murder accusations against his wife and her two kids? 
she stood by him through her whole trial and she guilty. Uh, he not so much. He's not standing by her. No, he's saying she basically was the reason everything happened. This is Bengali in the relationship. And here's the weirdest thing now. The prosecutors in his case are asking for some clarity as to whether or not the two of them can talk. Have a meeting, maybe a privileged meeting, or maybe just talk on the jailhouse lines. It's a really interesting question because originally Lori wanted a meeting. She wanted to meet with Chad and his lawyers and strategize, and the court said no back in January. But now Lori's not in that same jurisdiction anymore, so that piece of paper might not work. And I think the prosecutors are now wondering, so what is the rule? Where are we with this? Because they might want to hear what the two of them have to say. Don't ask me. Ask Jesse Weber. He's the News Nation legal contributor who knows way more about this stuff than I do. I was trying to figure this one out. Yeah. Are, they t- are they like me? They just want to overhear what the two of them have to say? Of course they do. <laughs> I mean, let, let, let's be clear. So originally, prosecutors said, we don't want them having direct face-to-face conversations. The reason I think they didn't want this At that time, there was issues of competency with Lori Vallow. They were being tried jointly. She wouldn't go to trial yet. I don't think they wanted to have anything that would jeopardize the prosecution of her case because their big issue was, well, wait a minute. What happens if somebody says something and their attorneys are there? They could be called as witnesses, right? There's no privilege among them. Now it's a very different scenario. She has been convicted. She has been sentenced. What I think they want is them to talk, preferably on the phone, because those jailhouse recordings are recorded. They can be presented in, in, a, in a trial against Chad Daybell. But even more than that, you know, there's the spousal privilege, right? Between a husband and a wife, you can't compel your spouse. You can't be compelled to testify against you. In Idaho, there's an exception. If the communications are about an injury to a child or about a crime committed in that household, those communications well, are not privileged. That's, that's both killings, right? Exactly. Because the children belong to Lori and Tammy is in the household with Chad. So that yep. would be a double whammy. So do you expect, first of all, to see Lori on the stand in Chad's trial? I mean, wouldn't it be nuts not to have her there? What would she say? Well, wouldn't I mean, she be it, mad as I, hell right now yeah. that he's throwing her under the bus? You think there would be a competency issue whether she'd be able to testify? What happened to love? Well, yeah. okay, I'll yeah. just play devil's advocate here. Competency, sure. You were ruled competent in a trial. Right. Why are you trying to suggest for any reason you're not competent now on the stand? I mean, I guess they, they could bring it up. You can go in and out of competency. Sure. That's no. That, that's a very real possibility. But when you have a woman who bet her life and still went with it in her own trial that Chad loved her and yeah. it was all going to be okay because Chad said so, well, now she sees that's not the case for him. Now she knows what the deal is, and her lawyer will likely tell her that too. But you're, you're accepting that she's... Rational, because even because remember her trial, there was those phone calls between her and her son, even her and Chad. She might not have come out and actually said she knew what happened to the kids. That's why I think she's rational. Yeah. You think it was deliberate because I thought and I'll say I'll say this to then. If there was an insanity defense in Idaho, I think she would have qualified. That's the way that I thought. No way. You don't believe it? No how. Nope. Wow. Nope. Nope. And nope. Because she went off to Hawaii. That's That's true. That's true. If you don't think, if you think it's a banana and I point the banana at you (laughs) to send you to Disney, then you get insanity because it's, you know, nature and consequences. But she just felt so justified in what happened to those kids. And I've heard those calls before in other cases. And I can tell when it's fake. But she couched her language, which meant she that is true. Something that is right. true. You know what? You know, you know what? That you're right about that. But look, this is a com- this is a point right now where Chad is going to 
tried to defend himself. She thinks she really wants to talk to him. And, you know, look, whatever they say, it potentially could be used against Chad Daybell. He is facing the murder charge of Tammy Daybell. It's a different charge than uh, than what Lori Vallow faced. So he's facing a similar case, but but a little bit different as well. A little bit. All I hope for is that they do get to talk yeah. and it does become evidence because I am dying to hear what this woman scorned might say. You remember in her, her trial, that conversation between the two of them before the children's remains were found was a crucial piece of evidence. Sure. And I thought it was one of the most chilling things where they're yep. talking so calmly about oh, the bodies they, being discovered. And they were couching their language there for You're right. sure. I, she knew exactly what yep, was going on. Yep. Listen, I'm point. no dumb dumb. Well, ha- sometimes. <laughs> when you're here, you make me smarter. Jesse Weber, thank you. Appreciate it. As you. always, you got to come back. Promise me. Okay, thank you. Still to come, lots more, in fact. When somebody is on the run, suspected of doing something bad enough to warrant a manhunt, uh, we're not dropping it until the bad guy is caught. It's now been 27 days since Sean Williams escaped from his jail transport van in Tennessee, and Sean Williams has quite a rap sheet. 52 suspected rapes. That is just the tip of the iceberg with this guy. We are live with an update. From Johnson City next. If you are keeping track, and we are, of all the manhunts going on around the country right now, the ones that we've been covering extensively, uh, a lot of pictures that we got to deal with here. For starters, Aaron Pennington, I talked about him earlier on the show, Gardner, Massachusetts guy, Massachusetts, right? He was wanted for shooting his wife in the face. Four kids at home took off. He's still out there. Joey Fournier, accused of murder, and Jennifer Barwell, drug distribution offenses. Those two are the two of four escapees still out there on the run. Um, they were in Macon, Georgia. They were accused of busting out of the, the jail there. Two of them were caught. Those other two are still out there. The killer of Rachel Morin. Um, it's a weird shot. You can just see his back as he's coming out of the, the doorway of another home where DNA matched him to the killing. That home was a was an assault of a, of a youngster, and that's the person who was coming out of the home. They still haven't caught him. And Sean Williams on the right there. Sean Williams is the, I just keep calling him the 52 rapes guy, because they suspect that he's responsible for 52 rapes on camera. They got off his thumb drive, among many other crimes. So let's start with Sean. Uh, 27 days since he was able to bust out of his cuffs and his shackles and his belly chain in the prison transport. Two guards are in there, and they don't know. They don't see it. They don't hear it. <laughs> little little transit van. Uh, and he gets out the back window. They don't know. They don't hear it. They don't see it. Nobody knows till they get to the courthouse. And where's the inmate? Inmate's gone. I smell a rat on that one. Okay, let's just put that aside. 27 days ago, that happened in Greenville, Tennessee. They're still looking for this guy. He's got federal and state charges of child pornography, like a rap sheet that's super long. Look at all these. By the way, one of those porn charges was against a child under the age of two, so this is who we're dealing with. And I want to do a quick description because we learned something new about his um, lightning bolt tattoo that's on his shoulder or near his shoulder. It's a single lightning bolt, and it kind of looked like the SS bolt of the white nationalists, but there's only a single one. See it? This is what the authorities have told News Nation. They have no knowledge of ties to white nationalists or other supremacy groups, but there's the tattoo. There's a second tattoo of a cross on his forearm, that's important, and then a symbol on his middle finger. Um, this is where I want to bring in Brooke Schaefer. Uh, she's in Johnson City, Tennessee. They're still on edge there. She's live with the latest. So, Brooke, you were able to talk to a resident who's been doing a really significant documentation of this case start to finish on TikTok. He's talked to a lot of the victims. What have you learned? 
Yeah, you know, he said he talks to a lot of the victims frequently. They've been able to connect through social media. And he said that tonight there is a real fear among some of these victims. They are worried, of course, about where Sean Williams is. Could he show up again? And what could he be capable of if he does? So I asked him about that. Here's what he said. I know the victims are. The victims are absolutely concerned because why wouldn't you be with him on the loose? But honestly, a lot of people are talking about it like they, they can't believe that he escaped. Do you still keep in contact with some of the victims? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All the time. And what have what have your conversations been like since his escape? Um, Michaela, sp- specifically, the woman who fell five stories out of the, the window, she just, she's living day to day, hoping that he doesn't pop back up. And he said that is really the concern, that Sean Williams will come back to Johnson City, Tennessee, after he is alleged to have drugged and raped mm. dozens of women. So, Brooke, next question. Did the residents there have faith in the police? Because I already said I smell a rat on the whole jail transport business. How do the people there feel? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of skepticism, a lot of questions like the ones that you're posing. You know, how could he have escaped? This isn't his first time on the run. He was a fugitive for two years before they arrested him again in April. So, of course, you know, how did he escape the first time? How did he escape the second time? Uh, We should mention, you know, Williams was not in the custody of the Johnson City Police Department when he escaped. It was another agency. But even still, there is another spotlight on the Johnson City Police Department. Allegations that they didn't investigate Sean Williams. Uh, We did ask them about that, but they didn't really comment on it because of some pending lawsuits that are out there right now. Right, by some of the victims who are quite upset about all of this. It's a bit of a mess, um, without question, in Johnson City, Tennessee. Brooke Schaefer, great work. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. By the way, U.S. Marshals Service is offering its $7,500 reward if you've got information that can lead uh, to Sean Williams' arrest. Just call the number on your screen, 877-926-8332. You can go to usmarshals.gov slash tips. Take a picture of your screen. I always say that. Keep it handy on your phone in case you're out and about, and all of a sudden, you need to call someone real quick. All right, coming up next, our jaws like just dropped on this one. Uh, it's only been about a week since a Florida dentist uh, named Charlie Adelson was found guilty of the murder of his little sister's ex-husband. And this is his mom, Charlie Adelson's mom. And she just got arrested. Like, just. You will not believe where she was and what she was about to do when the police put the cuffs on her. You'll hear all of that next. charged with murder nothing screams innocent like buying a one-way ticket to vietnam because that's what donna adelson did when police arrested her last night at the miami airport and who is donna adelson you ask good question Uh, she's the mother of charlie adelson who was just found guilty last week of hiring a couple of hitmen to knock off his little sister's ex-husband that ex-husband would also be donna's former son-in-law his name was dan markell he was murdered 2014 Uh, donna came up a lot in the tallahassee trial of her son wiretaps, emails, texts, you know. Prosecutors showed that uh, Charles' mom was allegedly in on the murder plot from the get-go. Maybe even orchestrated it, they say. Four people have been convicted or pleaded in that murder, and now Donna, again, the dead man's mother-in-law, is facing